It's good to see you all. It's great to see you all. It's great to be in this moment with you. It was good to have breakfast with you and good to share with you. I hope we get to share more in the days ahead. I've, I've heard a lot of good things about a lot of good things that happened this summer, and I'm eager to hear from you about those things. I was told, given my marching orders coming in, that I was uh, meant to come and share about the sabbatical in the social room during the 10 o'clock hour. And I said, and, and what of that am I supposed to bring into the pulpit? And Connie said, nothing. <laughs> You're just supposed to preach. Preach the word, preach the text. So here we are. But it is, it is good to see you. And there is something that I want to name now that I really think is accentuated by the essence of this text in 1 Timothy that we just heard. And Connie picked up a little bit on it when she was inviting us to consider the nature of it. As we heard, it's known as one of the pastoral letters in the New Testament, which means that it was written from one pastor to another. It is filled with affection and instruction and guidance and grace. And in between and underneath all of that is this deep abiding love in this wonderful relationship that is being experienced between these two colleagues in ministry, which is why I want to bring up now one particular thing that I'm grateful for as I come back and re-enter this space and this community with you all, and that is the appreciation and the affection that I have for my colleagues in ministry. Of course, we're all colleagues in ministry. We're all call, called by God to serve Christ and others in this world, and so I am appreciative of this congregation. It is a gift to live and serve with you and worship with you and be in this space with you. This congregation is, is and has been an incredible gift to our family. But even more specifically, I want to take a moment as we linger on these words written lovingly from one ministry colleague to another to say how much I love and appreciate our church staff. It is truly one of the greatest gifts of my life to get to serve with every single member of our staff. One of the reasons I truly love serving here and being here in this church, and one of the reasons that I miss it most when I'm gone, is because I get to serve with them and learn with them and laugh with them. I, I truly love them, and I appreciate them. I don't just love them, I like them too. They're a blessing, not just in who each of them is and what each of them does, but in how they do it all together. It's a gift to watch. I do not take them for granted, and I hope that you never will either. In fact, I would love it if, if you all, some, you know, some attention has been given to me and, and our return here, but I would love it if, if you all would exercise your attention, hopefully over the next month, to let each and every single member of our staff, except me, uh, know how much of a blessing they are to you by doing something specific to bless them. Now, whether that's a note or a gift or a kind word, whatever that might be, I hope you'll take the time to do that. And with all that being said, and much more that could be said than we have time to say, we'll turn back now to this letter from one colleague in ministry to another with an eye for guidance that might help us find, experience, and share in what the writer of this letter calls the life that is truly life. We pray together. And now, O oh God, will you illuminate your word for us in such a way 
that we might more fully experience your love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in and beyond these moments of worship. For it is in the name of Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen. So when I first prayed through this passage a few weeks ago in anticipation of today, the line that stuck out to me most in all of those lines was the one the pastor wrote in verse 6, where he says, Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Now, I found that striking. Not just that there is great gain in godliness... And not just that there is great gain in contentment, but what I found most striking was the the combination. That there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Striking and intriguing. So what I wanted to do, and what I did in the first draft of this sermon, is really explore and reflect on this idea that there is power and much to be gained in the intermingling of godliness and contentment. Though what I found was that was too much for this moment. And the Chiefs are playing at 12, right? I've been reminded of that this morning already. And I'm a little out of practice. It takes a little more work to do short things than long things. So we're, we cut some of that out, the contentment piece specifically. Now there will be other moments to explore that because I do think it's a powerful combination And perhaps it's a little bit of what we explore today. It'll point us toward that. We we certainly can hint at it a little bit, but for now we're just going to have to be content to focus on the idea and the aspiration of this thing called godliness. Now if I were to ask you to pause and think about someone in your life, either now or in the past, who you consider godly, No matter what you think of that term, godliness, you could probably identify someone, and a little bit more prompting, you could probably tell me why. Why are they godly? Why do you consider them godly? Or even what what is it about them that makes you, in particular, feel that way with the assumption that your definition of godly might be positive? I don't know what your definition of godly might be, but when, when I was a student at East Texas Baptist University. You remember that place, Alina? Where are you? ETBU, right? All right, go Tigers. When I was a student at East Texas Baptist University, to be considered godly was always a positive thing. And and I, I knew a lot of people at ETBU who were seeking out, they were on the lookout for someone who was godly. And for most of these people, the definition of godly was Christian and cute. (laughs) Hopefully they also had a good sense of humor. It's surely not this way in many schools, but at a somewhat conservative evangelical Christian university that I attended, there was this unwritten policy that was never named in public by the administration, but often quoted by students, maybe you've heard it before, a ring by spring or your money back. I don't know if that ever happened at William Jewell. But I do have friends who graduated from there years ago who call it Billy Jewel Bible School. So maybe. Because there were a number of students who who chose to spend their money to go to a school like this because it was a place of faith. They chose it not only with their parents to obtain a degree, but so that they might also obtain a spouse. 
Ideally, while you're there, because you could move from the regular dorms to the married housing, and that was the goal, right? Because when I was there, I don't know if they changed it before you got there, when I was there, if you were dating someone, if you wanted to sit on the couch in your room and watch TV with them, you could do it once a month with your student ID. You had to check in and you got a couple hours and once a quarter on Saturday, right? So married housing was a huge step up. You could watch TV anytime you wanted. Now, I neither got a ring by spring nor my money back. I had to go to seminary for that. And I, I, I did go on scholarship, so there was a little financial gain there. And, of course, in the end, I, I did get that ring. And, of course, you know she's godly and cute. <laughs> Sometimes she thinks I am, too. Cute, not godly, but cute. <laughs> Probably not right now. And who really is godly? I mean, if godly means like God or a like godness, I certainly hope I'm not too godly because I don't want God to be like me. I know too much about me to want God to be like me. No, I want, I want God and believe God to be much more generous and gentle and sensitive and kind and peaceful and gracious and loving and justice-oriented and free then I consistently am, and I'm sure you feel the same way. You don't want God to be like me, and you, you don't want God to be like you, probably. You want God to be like Jesus, and thanks be to God, our scriptures tell us that that is exactly what God is like. That's what our scriptures mean when they talk about godliness. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, right? If you want to know what God values and what God is wanting and working for in the world, you look at Jesus. If you want to know who God loves and how God loves, you look at Jesus. God is revealed to us in a number of ways throughout Scripture and creation, but the fullest revelation of God is Jesus. And none of us are Jesus, right? So who of us is godly? Well, perhaps I thought, as I thought about this more, in a way... All of us. Perhaps all of us are godly. Perhaps every one of us is godly because every one of us, whether we are a person of faith or not, has a God. Little g. And every one of us is being formed into the image of that God or some God who is the focus to some degree of our discipleship. All of life is spiritual formation and you are being formed into something, into the image of something. We are all being formed into the image of the gods who we worship. So who or what are your gods? And if you were to examine your own life right now in an honest way, how would you say that you, in light of who your gods are, are becoming godly, like them, informed by them, formed by them. We could pick on any number of gods, and, and the writer of this passage of Scripture picks first on the god of materialism or wealth. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Connie accentuated love of money because it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many of the evils in the world, perhaps most of the evils in the world, we could look to and say, hey, here's the financial connection in that. Jesus himself said we can't serve both God and manna or wealth or stuff or material things or the ambition behind them. And so we certainly know there's truth in that, but there are even beyond that many other gods in our lives. 
And as I considered this, I decided for the sake of time to focus on one that Leslie Newbegin predicted would create and become an incredible stronghold on us at some point in the future. In fact, it caught my attention because, because he believed this particular God would over time become or replace our religion. Let's see if you think he might be on something. Way back in the 70s, which is more way back for some of us than others, Leslie Newbegin, a theologian and sociologist, not socialist, but sociologist, made the prediction that we as the West, as we as the West became more secularized, that religion would not go away because we all have this God-sized hole in us, as Augustine said. It's crying out for God and we're going to fill it with something, with some God. So what he said is, our, polit- our, 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 our religion is not going to go away, but that instead we'll begin to fill it with our politics. Our religious commitments and our affections, he said, would get transferred over from our religion to our politics. Yeah, can you believe somebody thought that? Back in the 70s? I mean, what's that going to look like? Back in the 70s, the prophet Leslie Newbegin said he thought a day was coming when our politics and our political groups would replace the importance of and the focus of and the value shaping and the person shaping that our faith communities and our religions had previously held. He called it the rise of political religions. Like one day our politics would become our religion. And he kind of broke down what that would look like. What a kook. When's that going to happen? When are our commitment to our politics going to start shaping us in our way that our commitment to Jesus used to shape us? I mean, can you imagine what it might look like if scores and scores of us started to be formed into the image of that God? The God of partisanship? What would that look like? Can you imagine? Unfortunately, if we're honest, many of us would say that we can feel that in the air right now. And we even feel it at the center of our own soul. At some point along the way, multitudes and multitudes of people inside our country decided to walk the aisle, go down on bended knee, and invite the Democratic Party into their hearts. At some point over time, a number of us in our country decided to go down on bended knee and invite the Republican Party into our hearts. And in some way make them our God so that politics, for instance, have become or replaced our religion and even have come to shape our view of Jesus. So that our preferred version of Jesus has become not our master but our mascot. We worship and follow Republican Jesus or Democratic Jesus or even American Jesus instead of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's really working out well for us, wouldn't you say? Let's keep that up. Let's keep immersing ourselves in 
our head space and our heart space in that 24-hour news channel, in that social media platform, to those websites, those streaming services. Let's keep ourselves committed to being immersed in and formed by that. Now, politics is necessary and useful. It's how we organize things. It's really a a work of taking partial truths from different sides and working together to find a way forward in society. Politics, believe it or not, can be good, but always makes a horrible God. And yet it's just one example of the kinds of many gods that many of us choose to give our lives to. And that will always leave us ultimately unsatisfied and discontent. We will not find in and through them the life that is truly life. No, for that we've got to consider a different kind of godliness. A different kind of godliness that though vastly different than other kinds of godliness actually does hold one thing in common with all of them and that is what they require. Our time. They all require time. Being formed in the image of any God, what the writer of 1 Timothy calls godliness, requires time. Time with that God. Time focused on that God. Time to be affected by that God. Time for the whims and ways of that God to seep into your consciousness, your heart, your instincts, so that the values of that God become your values and the life of that God starts to be reflected in and out of your life. This is how we become godly. Over time. In fact, one of the distinctions of worship for the people of God throughout the centuries was that their worship was organized not first and foremost around a place, but within a space in time. The rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has called our Sabbaths our cathedrals in time. We find the idea of Sabbath, or setting aside a period of time each week to put aside all of our work and distractions and give our attention to the one true God and to our loved ones and all the good things that God has provided in our life sitting right in the opening lines of Scripture. Why? Because we need regular intervals of focused time with God for the life of God, the life that is truly life, to be continually formed in us And through us, God wants us to remember this and has commanded us to practice this. This is why we find in the dead center of the Ten Commandments, God commanding us to remember and observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And scholars have noted again and again and again that when you look at the two different versions of the Ten Commandments, you see the same thing. The Sabbath command is right in the center. And all of the commands before that command are about loving God. And all of the commands after that command are about loving neighbor. And they are is because the practice of Sabbath is the hinge to help us learn to do both. We've got to set aside the time. This is the truth Annie Dillard was tapping into when she wrote, How we spend our lives is, of course, how we spend our days. 
because she understood that what we are becoming is intricately tied together with what we spend our time doing. One pastor described it like this, described the process of apprenticeship to Jesus like this, which is what discipleship is. He said apprenticeship to Jesus is essentially being with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus and learn to do the things that Jesus does. Being with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus and do the things that Jesus does in this world and in this life. So what does it mean to become an apprentice to Jesus? It means becoming like him in who you are and what you do. And what will that take? Being with Jesus. And what does that require? Time. What must you do when you discover that you need to adjust or upend the way you spend your money? You create a new budget, right? What must we do when we've taken an honest look at our lives and have to confess that they are not really Christ-like? Which is what 1 Timothy meant by godliness. Well, if what we're really after is the life that is truly life, then we seriously ought to consider how we are budgeting our time. Is there anyone here today who senses the Spirit of God calling them to reconsider how they're budgeting their time? Or to put it another way, is there anyone here today who senses deep down in your soul that it's time to really give your life to Jesus? I hope you'll consider what that might mean for you as we continue to worship singing this hymn of commitment.